You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, recording live here from the Diamantina Shire. Just myself again this week, Clancy Overall here. Errol has persisting symptoms. We don't think he has uh, the coronavirus, but um, this is the world we live in now. Scratch and a cough. Um, Stay the hell home. Uh, stay away from the workplace so he'll be you'll see him he's still riding from home but he is not coming to the newsroom or the studios for for any of these interviews so it's just me holding the fort today and today's guest actually it's been a while since we interviewed a member of the political class one of the swamp things uh who spends a lot of time down there in canberra on our dollar we've interviewed a, a fair range of pollies over the years but it's been a while since we've done this. Maybe it's because politicians go missing during crises in this country. We, we've interviewed Anne Ali. We've interviewed John Barillaro of uh, New South Wales Deputy Premier fame. We've actually reached out to Chris Afuli, our own opposition leader up here. And uh, Jackie Trad, the, the late Jackie Trad, voted out in, uh, in Queensland, saved Anna's ass there, um, being replaced by the Greens. Yeah, of course, Michael McCormack, the uh, the former Deputy PM, was uh, one of our last federal politicians we interviewed on here, as well as a whole range of ex-politicians who are happy to talk uh, once once they're out of the top job. Uh, Christopher Pine comes to mind, the insider. Uh, but today today's guest is a sitting politician, sitting uh, MP from uh, the uh, the electorate of Solomon in the top end. Uh, voted in in 2016, former ADF serviceman. Thank you for joining us today, Luke Gosling, MP. Great to be with you, Clancy. Now, mate, you are living in the true free state at the moment. You're, you, we're streaming in, obviously, coming to us live from Darwin. Tell us a little bit about life up there. It certainly isn't the same as, you know, life in in, in the in the east coast with these, you know, snap lockdowns, or in, in New South Wales' case, these never-ending lockdowns. Yeah, certainly a lot better than that, mate. Although we did have a quick one-week snap lockdown recently, uh, but we bounced out of that uh, after a week. All the Territorians did the right thing, and we find ourselves having a, a, a following week with just wearing masks around. Everyone did the righty, and we're free as a bird again. So we've got the Darwin Cup on this Monday coming, so the uh, Cup Carnival's on. Victoria's out of lockdown, so they're yeah they had cancelled their trips to the territory, but they're on their way back in in droves. So we've taken a bit of a hit in that a lot of people from New South Wales aren't coming up to the territory for their holidays. But the joint is booming because we've um, yeah we've done well with COVID and we've played that really vital national role with Howard Springs facility and getting people back from overseas as well. So every now and again, we have some people come back from overseas with COVID, but they're it's all handled out at the uh, Howard Springs facility, and then uh, we, we're doing our bit to uh, keep Australia safe. So tell me about Howard Springs, because everyone talks, yeah, Howard Springs comes to mind. No one really knows what's going on out there. Some of us have seen pictures. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a donger setup. We kind of talk about this responsibility on the government to provide federal quarantine facilities. We know that in Toowoomba, the Wagners have been shovel-ready since about December. They've got an international airport there. They could do it. They could get it done in a couple months. They just need the government sign-off and probably not even that much government funding. The Prime Minister's continuing to kind of sidestep that one and, and will keep them quarantined in luxury hotels inside the CBD of our biggest economy. Tell us what's going on in Howard Springs. What, what was it and what, what is it? Was it there before? The virus and uh, is an old mining camp. What's going on there? Yeah, so just quickly on Toowoomba. I mean, that's a no-brainer. There's an airport there. Fly people in, get it done. And the uh, weird thing is that the Prime Minister asked for advice on how he can get quarantine right last year and he was given a report in October to say you need dedicated quarantine facilities like Howard Springs, but around the country, open up more. But now we've had 28 Mm. hotel quarantine leaks. It shuts down the economy costing the Australian economy uh, billions. So, you know, well done, Prime Minister. Because he was given that advice, he asked for it, he was given it. He's failed to open up more dedicated facilities like Howard Springs, which is 
you know, played a really important role. It's an old um, workers' camp from the big Japanese gas facility when that was built, Impex, uh, and there was 5,000 workers out there. They're only using about 2,000 of the rooms uh, at the moment for quarantine, so flights come back from Europe, UK, India. If people come from interstate and it's where there's a lockdown, they spend two weeks there. Cost 2,500 bucks or five grand for a family, but it has not had one leak, not one leak, because it's a dedicated yeah. facility as opposed to a hotel which is not designed for quarantine. Yeah. No, no, shared air vents don't seem to do that well. I mean, they've even got a pool out there in Howard Springs. I've seen them having a dip there. No, it's um, beautiful. It's beautiful. I've got friends yeah. out there at the moment. I mean, it's not the best way to have a holiday in the Territory, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's not like, you know, getting out into seeing Uluru or out to Kakadu, the waterfalls, but there is a pool. Mm-hmm. You know, they get their ration every day to, to keep them going. And mm-hmm. um, they seem to have a good time out there. Some have had too much of a good time out there. There's been a couple of... Uh, little parties there, but there's been no escape of the virus, and I think that's a key thing. Yeah, what the federal government should have done a long time ago, and I think they're just being stubborn, is around the country there's still 30,000 or more Aussies stranded overseas. They should have been getting more of those back through dedicated facilities that wouldn't have you know, shut down the economy. So tell me, as a military man, what are your feelings? I mean, obviously, you, you know, you, you're from the Labor camp, so you... It is your job to to kind of point out what the current government's doing wrong, but coming from a military perspective, how do you feel watching this? I guess rollout, vaccine rollout, just 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 the way things are being handled in this pandemic, which um, aren't very regiment. No, not very competent. The problem was last year to cut to the chase. The government had the opportunity to buy a heap of Pfizer buy a couple of different types of vaccines and they could have started getting everyone vaccinated. They could have even had a public information campaign to say, look, everyone get vaccinated. You know, we've we've knocked other viruses and um, pandemics on the head before. Everyone has their vaccinations when they're a kid. So they could have done that, rolled out the vaccine, had some dedicated quarantine around the country and we would have been right as rain. We would have been leading the world by now. So that's been disappointing to see. They've actually brought in uh, a bloke called JJ Fruin, who used to be uh, posted up here in Darwin as the first brigade commander. I know him well, and uh, the government have brought him in to um, be the front person for the pandemic response. And just think if the health minister and the prime minister and had it done their jobs, there wouldn't have been any need for that. But I'm sure, you know, General Fruin will do a great job and it just seems more and more these days that um, the government goes to the military and they've actually got a fair bit to do themselves. They've just wrapped up 20 years of operations in Afghanistan but very clearly with um, things in our region, in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, being pretty uncertain. They've got a lot of other things to do with their day job. So um, whilst the Defence Force is there for national emergencies and they did a great job with the bushfires, they did a great job helping with coronavirus, but I think the uh, federal government, if it could work a bit more cooperatively with all the states, regardless of whether they're Labor or Liberal or whatever, then I think we'd be doing a lot better than we are. And, of course, we hope that New South Wales can get things sorted as quickly as possible, get the economy back on track, but time will tell whether they're able to do that or not. Tell me, as a, as a, as a former serviceman, I mean, you, you, you ended up in Darwin like a lot of uh, military uh, men and women do. It's a it's a big army town. You ended up there through your work with the ADF, and and, and found yourself in politics and and remained there. Tell me, just harking back, you know, pre politician to to your time in the ADF. How does it make you feel when you see the army? Just you know that term being thrown around like a a toy that the Prime Minister can throw when, when things are grim. You know, there were, the army was brought into the bushfires without any consultation of the New South Wales government. The army was offered to this, and you know, like, as you said, Indo-Pacific, as well as whatever's wrapping up in the Middle East, there's a lot of stuff for the army to be doing, and they're, they're, they're probably, I guess you'd say it's not actually commonplace for a Prime Minister just to be able to throw them around like that for um, climate or just disasters in general or public health episodes. Yeah, no, you're dead right. And I think the Prime Minister, there's no doubt that um, he's yeah, using the military in a way that's unfortunate. 
of course, they're there as um, servants of the, the people whenever he's, uh, whenever they're needed. But yeah, they've got an important role to do to do all the training that they need to do for when they're needed to defend the country and defend our interests wherever that may be, whether it's in our region or or further afield. So I, I think he's used them as a bit of a crutch to um, try and back up his own uh, leadership failings. And um, it'd be good if he stopped doing that and just let them crack on with all the uh, all the important training and exercises uh, like they're doing at the moment up in Queensland and across the, the north because uh, we've got to be training with our partners and allies uh, so that we're ready for whatever comes next. How did you find yourself as a member of the Labor Party? I'll ask you that. I mean, I don't think the ADF is viewed from a ground level in Australia as, as being particularly partisan to anything. The last war Australia kind of took part in was, you know, under a uh, Liberal government. You yourself spent all that time moving around and overseas and in Australia. At what point did you realise the Labor Party was the party for you before you, you know, then went and joined it and, and got elected for the Labor Party? Yeah, it's funny. Like, when you're in the military, I was in the army, um, you, you don't really think about politics at all. I always voted Labor. I just sort of had a gut feeling. I wasn't from a political family. But I just had a gut feeling coming from a, a big family um, with not much money around that um, they're always looking after people um, you know, that might have been doing it hard or uh, looking after people, making sure they got an education and, and good health care. And then when I got out of the army and started working overseas and um, seeing a bit more how society worked, because you're in kind of in a bit of a bubble when you're in the military and you're just doing your own thing, you're training hard, you're really proud to be serving the nation. And then when you get out, you're just starting to look around society a bit more and you just, things struck me as being uh, not that fair. And I kept meeting good politicians, particularly when I was over in Timor, uh, both with the army and I started up a charity over there. And the good politicians I was meeting, they were all Labor. And I just, it graded on me, uh, when I did see coalition people, policies just didn't sit right with me. So I, I thought, well, I want to be part of the future leadership of the country. I'll back myself to do a good job. But I wanted to contribute, so I joined the party uh, and I worked in different places doing different things. Uh, worked in Indigenous health after the army. Working with people in society on the on the fringes a bit and Sort of, yeah. I worked for a couple of companies as well, doing health health services. So I had a bit of, bit more of a sense of um, what was good in society, what was could be improved, and I just felt really comfortable with Labor because I reckon we've got the the right balance. Uh, it sat comfortably with me. I'm from a, a family that believes in social justice. There's not a day that goes by that I regret my decision to join the Labor Party. I've been in the party for about 17 years or so now in my uh, just about to come up to my third sorry my fourth election I ran the first time in 2015 and lost by about 700 votes but yeah dusted myself off and said no I think this is important particularly for Darwin because we're the capital of the north and we're such a big um, defense town but we're also a city that's basically in our region we're in Southeast Asia you know it's we're, we're a lot closer uh, to places like Singapore, uh, Denpasar, Dili and East Timor uh, than we are to, to Melbourne yep. and Sydney, Canberra even. So it takes me 10 hours to get to Canberra. Mm. I can get over to Bali in, in two and a half or so. So we're in the region, we're engaged with the region and I just thought it was really important that we had someone who was going to fight for Darwin and fight for the north. So I ran again and uh, won in 2016 won again in 2019. So this election, yeah, really looking forward to, you know, getting some more responsibilities in our federal Labor lineup. Um, I am the only veteran in our lineup, and I'm hoping that's going to change at the next federal election because there's obviously a lot I can uh, contribute to when it comes to Northern Australia policy, Indo-Pacific policy, uh, defence, veterans, and, um, yeah, just really eager to get this next election over the way, out of the way, I reckon federal Labor can form the next 
federal government, yeah, Darwin is um, will be looked after well by me, if I can say so humbly. <laughs> like, is, is that the feeling up there in the top end? I mean, it, it must be for some time now. It, it's an Asian city. Is, is that the feeling on the streets, do you find, at least in, in, in the political end of town? We're a tropical city and, yeah, to some, to some extent, uh, you're right, we're an Asian city, but we're also an outback mm. city. You know what I mean? So we had the show on the weekend and the Royal Darwin show in 1986 is when I first fell in love with this joint. Mm. You know, mum and dad packed eight of us kids up into a, into a high ace van with a trailer on the back and they took us out of school and around Australia for um, over three months. And uh, I remember rocking into Darwin after coming up the track, after seeing Uluru and, um, and some of the, you know, Litchfield and, you know, Kakadu. And we stayed at a caravan park near the Royal Darwin show and um, we didn't have much cash. We were living on sandwiches, but um, mum and dad want us, want us to see our nation and, and it was such a good time. But um, so, yeah, we jumped the fence into the Royal Darwin show, just ran around and Darwin has that mix of, you know, we support all the agriculture, aquaculture, you know, the cattle stations, um, the indigenous entrepreneurs that are now out there on land. They're using their land for carbon credits. Uh, they're getting into aquaculture. And there's a bright future for the territory as um, the different mines come on on board as well for some of those critical minerals that we really need. So all of that, and Darwin's the hub of that. So we're, And we've uh, obviously got a port that, uh, in my uh, view, should never have been obviously sold. But um, we've got a port that connects us to the region. We've got an airport that connects us to... Cities from Manila through to Singapore, Malaysia, Bali, East Timor, and everywhere in between. So we are we are very much in our region and the tropical feel. It's not Singapore because we haven't got that that much high rise, but it's got that kind of calm vibe, and it's got the wet season and the dry season. So it's got that lovely mix of um, torrential rain, and every now and again there's a massive cyclone. Um, so everyone's got to be prepared for that every year. But we love the monsoonal rains. We love our dry season that we just got at the moment and uh, Darwin Festival is just about to start where it's perfect weather every day. So, uh, yes, it's hot, um, but you definitely know when you get off the plane at Darwin Airport that you are in the tropics, yeah, and you are in the region when you get off that plane because the warmth hits you. And um, when you go to our markets, you can just eat any type of Asian food that you'd want to, and you see it around the streets. We're the most multicultural place in Australia, and a big percentage of that multiculturalism is our First Nations. So you've got people that have lived here, the Larrakia people uh, for millennia, and you've also got people, the Yongu from Arnhem Land, because uh, this is the base that services the rest of the territory. So... Uh, you see all sorts, and um, and we just love it that way. Tell, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, you said you worked in, um, you know, Indigenous health and education there. Currently, got a Labor NT government at the moment uh, under Michael Gunner. I find uh, Northern Territory is an interesting one because NT Labor particularly doesn't necessarily uh, align immediately with federal Labor. Uh, right now, Gunner's copping a lot of flack. You know, there's the uh, the issue of jail, not bail. You know, you know, uh, indigenous incarceration of indigenous kids. What what are your thoughts on some of these socioeconomic issues that that you know everyone points to the territory uh, when they want to highlight? Um, they exist in towns all around Australia, but the territory does have you know some pretty alarming rates. What what, what are your thoughts and 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 what do you think you can bring at, uh, to a federal level uh, regarding a lot of these issues? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert. But I have um, I had the privilege of working out in Arnhem Land with Yongle soldiers as part of Norforce, and that was an incredible experience. When you're out on country with those Aboriginal Australian soldiers, you kind of get their connection, and it's amazing. Their connection with country, their knowledge of country, the way that they're held in their community, and the difference that they make by leading by example. A mate of mine, Timmy Duggan, uh, he's got a great program called Hoops for Health. So, again, I'm not an expert, but I've been into Dondale, into that detention centre that a Royal Commission um, was launched over. 
and I've spent time there talking to the kids, playing a bit of basketball with the kids. Uh, at that time, there was one non-Indigenous kid in there, but generally they're all Aboriginal kids. Uh, they're kids that um, have found themselves in in detention because um, of you know, repeat offences, uh, unfortunately, with the uh, new bail laws, uh, it looks like there'll be more kids in going through that process. But what we've got to do, and the Northern Territory Government has already implemented most of the recommendations of that uh, Royal Commission into, into youth detention in the Northern Territory, they've received no financial support from the feds to, um, to build a new facility. But you've got a situation where you've got kids... Aboriginal kids that some of them have committed bad crimes, some of them just repeat offenders where they've been put into Dondale, and there is education in there while they're in detention, but the whole aim's got to be not to have them go into detention in the first place and to do more um, do more diversionary work. So I think that's why we've got to focus more and the NT government's moving that way. The other thing we've got to do, though, is we've got to lift this age of criminal... Uh, responsibility, which at the moment is 10. Mm. I mean, that is... Did you see 10-year-olds in Dondale? Did you see kids that age? In, in... Yeah. I, I saw I saw young kids in there that shouldn't have been in there. NT government's responsible for law and order. They've got a responsibility to keep people safe. So, obviously, um, no one wants to see people broken into, having their stuff stolen, assaulted by kids. But it's a small amount of kids. And if we put more effort into those kids and those families, like we're starting to do, then we'll find that these kids aren't recycling through that process. Because at the moment, all we're doing and what we found with the the detention centre human rights abuses that went on there against some of these young kids is that we've then setting up these kids for a life of going into the adult jail Mm -hmm. after youth detention and basically spent their lives... Uh, are going to be in, you know, continually um, incarcerated, and you know people talk about the the first thousand days and early childhood education, and I think they're long term fixes. But the short term fixes have got to be that we spend more time on the families, keeping them out of detention in the first place. We lift the age of criminal responsibility so that we can work with the young kids, not get them into the criminal justice system at that early age um, where they just learn potentially how to be better criminals. And we've got to have a bit more understanding that there's so many social determinants and the history of intergenerational trauma that's led to the situation where these kids have got no support. That's a, that's another thing I want to talk to you about, the intergenerational trauma, um, you know, obviously not specific to Aboriginal communities, but... Um when it does come to Aboriginal communities, you can almost point to government policy that's caused a lot of it. What do you say to the pearl clutches? And they do exist. I mean, uh, uh, Darwin's a wild town. Alice is a wild town, but they're also full of a lot of pearl clutches. You know what I mean? A lot of people that would just rather see kids go to jail than to even take a minute to understand, you know, why this kid's walking the streets at night. And part of your job is making the tough decisions. How do you how do you explain that to, uh, to your constituents? Yeah, no, I was fronted about it. Yesterday in a in a coffee shop um, uh, about you know what we're doing in federal labour. Uh, the unfortunate thing about federal labour is we keep losing in elections. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got First Nations uh, policy ready to go that will transform relations between uh, First Nations Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. It will revolutionise it, right from work opportunities out in the communities going back to more a CDEP program that we used to have where there was work on communities, where there was those opportunities for um, education and advancement into work, which makes a massive difference. But also the really foundational stuff from the Uluru Statement, like agreement-making processes, um, which are absolutely vital, but also Makarata, a bit of truth-telling. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the things that's needed... Um, so that we can all move forward as a country, is just acknowledge that our history and you know there's massacres have occurred all through the territory, but the reality and uh, stolen generation and I'm working with some stolen generation here in Darwin who still haven't been uh, compensated. That history has an effect 
on the future generations. We need more people to be understanding and empathetic about that. Now, it's, I'm not saying something controversial to say the current federal government has got a problem with empathy. Mm. I mean, their people do things, unconscionable things, and then get sent off to empathy training. That's not their strong suit. But what I would see with an incoming federal Labor government is that because I think we're a bit more representative and we've got a number of First Nations Australians in our in our mob, Pat Dodson, Malandiri McCarthy, and Linda Burney, and hopefully more after Malandiri McCarthy from here in the Territory and more after the next federal election, is that there's more of an understanding about how we're going to continue a process of moving forward together and supporting First Nations people, but just bringing the rest of society along with us and understanding the effects of intergenerational trauma and social determinants of health, i.e. those things in society that lead to a greater likelihood of poor mental health, uh, youth suicide, unemployment, um, addictions. You know, let's face it, addictions aren't um, uh, just a problem in First Nations communities. So I think I'd like to see from people that uh, leaders in our community get on the front foot and just explain a bit more how our society will be better off, we'll spend less money on health and in the criminal justice system if we make the investments to have better well-being. And I think regional Australia is going to have a resurgence. Places like Darwin and the Northern Territory are going to have a resurgence on the back of COVID because people are realising that whilst we have our challenges, it's a great place to live and generally people have better well-being, i.e. they're happier, they're not as stressed as people are in the big cities. And one of the stresses that's starting to happen in Darwin at the moment, and it's a big problem in remote communities, is housing. Mm -hmm. Housing's a drama all around the country. Here, in the, you can't find somewhere to live in Darwin at the moment. Rents have gone up 22%. We haven't got enough affordable housing. So that's what I'd like to see you know, the federal government get more engaged in is helping young Aussies, doesn't matter what background they're from, get into their first house help them get on their way to um, ha home ownership and a bit more affordable housing that's just not as greedy as the current current setup. And I think when people start thinking on the other end of this crisis about what we want Australia to look like, we'll have more people hopefully engaged in the solutions that we need, whether that be with, with, with First Nations issues or um, issues out in Western Sydney or wherever they may be. You know, if we are really all in this together, then we need to, you know, start making sure that whether you're a multinational company that pays no tax or someone who's on minimum wage that's trying to get into the housing market, are we really all in this together? We need to uh, make that a reality. And, um, yeah, that's, I guess, what I'm focused on. And, you know, just I can only talk for our mob, but we've got a $10 billion housing fund. And if we... Uh, if we get the confidence of the Australian people after the next election, we'll kick that into gear and that'll be better for um, people, not just in regional Australia, but in the cities as well. One one criticism that Labor copped after the last election loss to the Night Watchman, a, a shock election loss actually, on the on the eve of, of the death of Bob Hawke, but there was a lot of criticism that perhaps Bill and Labor, you know, Labor in general had forgotten what the middle class looked like. A lot of the policies, and uh, which have all just been ditched, actually. You know, I'm, I'm not ignoring that as well. A lot of those policies have been ditched, the unpopular ones. But you know, there is a you know a feeling that Labor had gotten to a point where they're looking at an ivory tower and, and kind of looking back to 20 years ago as to what the middle class looked like, where they thought everyone looks like Kath and Kim driving a you know Holden Barina and supplementing their income with a Tupperware party. You know what I mean? And there are a lot more people that exist in that middle now who you know do have assets and do and, and are very still very economically you know anxious but um aren't reaping any any of the benefits of the policies that came through at that election how do you reconcile you know and i'm sure you've seen it and 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 i'm sure you have no problem bringing it up that you do see you know people running around uh, whether they're elected or working as staffers who haven't really lived the life that Labor is trying to advocate for, you know what I mean? You've got a lot of university comrades 
maybe packed shelves while they're at Sydney University, but they actually are kind of detached from the working man. A lot of chinos with no socks, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm hearing you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I'm a, it's, it's, a, it's a frustration of, of mine, I, I guess. I think you know, when people say that you know, Labor's gone away from our roots, I don't think we can dismiss it entirely because mm. – and I've noticed, actually, in our pre-selections for this upcoming election, you've, you've got some people who've got a life of working mm-hmm. um, behind them. But there's no doubt that there has been a bit of a, a political class that did uni politics and uh, into local government or straight into you know, working as an advisor for a federal MP, which, mind you, I did that after the military. And I saw it as an apprenticeship before mm-hmm. running for politics Yep. But it was kind of on the back end of 13 years serving the nation and and uh, working in Indigenous health and working in the charity sector and working in health services. So I was I, I kind of felt like um, you know I've got some life experience and everyone has different life experiences uh, and people who are in inner city, particularly Darwin and sorry, um, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, they might really reflect their communities but they also need to be very aware um, that around this country there are a whole bunch of Australians that don't fit into that inner city suburban uh, mould and I I reckon that's why you know Albo has spent so much time out in the regions over his career because I think that's where People can, and we do in the Territory from, from time to time, uh, particularly recently, feel like they're forgotten. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no Australian government is worthy of government uh, if they're leaving any part of the country behind. I reckon we now, Federal Labor, uh, get becoming much more representative of people around the, around the country I'd like to see us win more regional seats, and I think we will see that uh, at the next election. But we, we've got to ensure that we are reflecting, and we are—we've got, yeah, you know, we're we're much more multicultural. We've got a fifty-fifty split with uh, blokes and women in our team. So I'm really comfortable in the direction that we're going. But I think we did need to have that adjust mm-hmm. um, because we were, yeah not looking like we um, represented the whole country. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit of a in in the wake of Hillary Clinton anyway. There was a there was a lot of kind of parallels that could be drawn. So you think Albo has addressed the the fact that uh you know maybe it is worth putting a few blokes with, you know, who have goatees in in as candidates as opposed to, you know, kids with the uh with the undercut and the uh and the the khaki suit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, heaven forbid, you know, someone with a tattoo or uh, you know, yeah, bit of facial hair or um, you know, someone who you know might have said something that they regretted on Facebook ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. But yeah, let's keep it real mm. um, because we, cha- we we you know we, we face real challenges in the future. It doesn't matter whether it's taken our economy to less carbon reliant, uh, you know, the First Nations issues that we've talked about, but real big security issues mm-hmm. um, of the alliance, our relationship with China. And that's why Darwin is so important too, because we, we are the forward operating base for the nation. Uh, we've got the best relationships with our neighbours. I spent a lot of time going in and out of Indonesia, even right at the start of COVID, trying to help them with, with their response. Um, and as soon as we can, we need to get back in there again because our neighbours uh, to our north are just to- so vital to our future security and prosperity and they're our friends and we should be helping them a, a hell of a lot more than we are. And one thing I've been saying recently is because the government has just ruined the whole narrative around AstraZeneca, for example, we have got millions and millions and millions of AstraZeneca shots that in September are going to expire. Now, if we're not going to to use those, if we're not going to be able to get them into Aussie arms by September when they expire, I mean, that is criminal. Mm. So we need to be 
getting them over to our neighbours because, for example, with AstraZeneca, the CSL factory in um, Melbourne, they're pumping out a million doses of AstraZeneca a week. So we can get fresh stuff to Aussies, but before the stuff that's going to expire mm. expires, let's get it in to help Indonesia. Let's We could, we could vaccinate the whole of... Uh, East Timor, for example, and let's face it, we should be doing the righty uh, by them after how things have rolled um, since uh, our our intervention in Interfet. And um, look, we, there's a lot more with PNG that we, we could be doing as well, and they're facing a lot of challenges. So, and in the Pacific, so um, we face some really big challenges with the emergence of uh, China as a as a more authoritarian and a uh, and, you know, with President Xi, um, with, you know, clearly a more aggressive stance by him, there's some big challenges we need to face in the future. And we need robust discussions. We need people with life experience that can really be in touch with our community and make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can um, to counter threats like cyber um, and the other threats um, that we're going to have, biosecurity threats, into the future so that we maintain the safety and security of, of Australians and also the prosperity that's going to mean that my kids, you know, and Australians all around the country have got a, a great country to keep living in for millennia or at least centuries to come. I want, I want to talk now, I mean, you're talking kind of, you, you, have, you do have a kind of world aspect that, that that's the Darwin thing. We've spoken about it before, you know, looking north and, of course, your military service. Want to want to talk now a little bit about some of the operations we've been in over the years, and uh, you know the state of which we've left some of our friends. Starting with with Afghanistan, we spent a lot of time there. Twenty years. Twenty years. How do you feel now about the parachute of the you know pulling the consulate out as quick as we did? You know, it was it was almost a week turnaround. What are your thoughts on what's going on over there right now? Well, it sent a really bad message um, to people in Kabul and a, a mate of mine from Army Days, he's now working in a different capacity over in Kabul and he was just saying it, it, it went around Kabul, that news, and it was like a kick in the guts that, um, that Australia had just pulled the pin and just left um, after 20 years uh, so quickly and with so many Afghanis that helped us as interpreters as security guards that protected the lives of DFAT staff, uh, AusAid staff, and obviously our soldiers, um, saved the lives of many of our soldiers. And we sort of, you know, gave a handful of visas out and said, no, see you later, good luck with the Taliban taking your country over again. So I've been very outspoken about that and a lot of veterans are very pissed off that we haven't done that a lot better. We're not talking about large volumes of Afghanis here either. We're talking about people who have been vouched for by Australians that have been through all the security checks, why more of them aren't being taken out. They don't even necessarily come to Australia, but I'm on the record of saying that you know, they're, they're welcome uh, here in Darwin. We'll provide a home for these people who you know, saved our soldiers' lives. But we're not talking about big numbers. There've been security checks, so yeah. So, so it's all happened. There've been security checks. They've been vouched for. What's the holdup? What do you think the government's avoiding here? Or why are they why are they just treading water? Why hasn't it just been signed off in the dark? Yeah, well, that's uh, a question that I'll be asking again in in Parliament next week, uh, as with a lot of others. Because, and you know, I've got to say, even people like John Howard uh, has come out and um, said we should be doing the right thing getting these people out. Now, obviously, uh, he was the Prime Minister when we went in in the first place, but there's been a lot of PMs during that time and uh, we've shed a lot of blood and treasure in that country and people in my electorate, it's rare that someone here in Darwin wouldn't know someone who served in Afghanistan. The majority have come back and kicked on with life, but there are uh, many others that have struggled and a lot of them, to be honest, mate, have struggled with the moral injury that's occurred um, through the service and through not being able to intervene in certain situations. Um, obviously, there's been some acts by a very small amount of our soldiers uh, that we can't be proud of, but the overwhelming majority of Australian soldiers served their 
in an exemplary way and they're now going, hang on, what, what was that all about? So to mate, answer your initial question, we shouldn't have pulled out all. So not so moral injury, sorry, I'll, I'll, just, yeah. um, I'll just get – moral injury, you're not talking about survivor's guilt or, or you, you're talking about a whole different thing there that people are feeling now looking back at, at the country. Yeah, and um, survivor's guilt is part of uh, moral injury. You sustain that yeah. um, that injury. And I think there's a lot of PTSD that's actually misdiagnosed as the moral injury that people have had because of an experience they've had, something they've seen, you know, something they've witnessed, either through the, you know, the, the Afghan military or uh, extrajudicial killings, um, but also that, that deep feeling of whether people back home understand what I'm doing, whether people back home know that my mate was just killed, whether people back home understand, and I'm not sure even myself, you know, why I'm here. So those feelings of a soldier, a sailor, or uh, an aviator that have all served over there during that time, and then and what I fought a, a, against really hard recently was then we're going to take a meritorious unit citation off you because of the sins of a very small amount of you. I mean, that's just nuts, and I'm glad that mm. that's been overturned. But there's a number of uh, moral injuries, I think, and the problem that pulling out so hard and fast leaving the Afghans who saved Australian lives behind and just sort of being seen to wash our hands of it, that's not good. We, we shouldn't have pulled out all our diplomats. We shouldn't have pulled out all our military advisors. Uh, we need to be, as well as we can, helping uh, as a member of the international community the transition as the Afghan national government now tries to work out how they can live with the Taliban. One, how they can stop the Taliban from taking over the whole country, if that's possible. And two, how they're going to navigate this minefield of big powers. You know, the Russians and their interests, the Chinese and their interests, the Pakistanis and, and their interests. It's a difficult future for that country and it sent a shocking message for us to um, cut and run like we did. Well, so we're not we're not detracting at all from from the work that the you know the, the soldiers did over there. But do you get the feeling that this is going to happen again in 20 years? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I think it's pretty much inevitable that yeah. uh, Al-Qaeda is there, um, is coming back. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the people that we were there to get rid of, so it wouldn't be a haven for more September 11-style uh, attacks. So unfortunately for Afghanistan, their war-torn future will unfortunately continue. But, you know, I, I'd like to be an optimist uh, optimistic in life. Um, I think one thing that our people can be really proud of is there's now more young women, for example, who have had an education. Uh, it's a more educated populace. It's a more internationally connected populace. And I think that even though young people might might see a future at the moment and might leave, um, I think they're going to be a bit more resilient and, and supported, hopefully. And that's why I think we shouldn't have pulled all our people out when it comes to dealing with life with the Taliban without um, you know, US and other allies in support. What are your thoughts on the, um, I imagine you're working alongside it, but on a lot of um, the stuff kind of Jackie Lambie's been spruiking. Are you working with Jackie on anything um, in, in regards to the treatment and uh, support for our veterans? Yeah, 100%. Mate, I'm, I'm fourth generation Australian veteran. Yeah, I'm away. Mm -hmm. My mum's grandfather was gassed on the Western Front, uh, pop, um, served in World War Two, and you know, lived with the effects of um, uh, of that war. And his son, my dad, uh, was conscripted, you know, Western Suburbs kid from Melbourne, conscripted, as uh, a lot of them were, um, to go over to Vietnam. So I served, um, I think partially because I think, you know, serving our nation is an honourable thing to do. But you definitely take, you know, you, you, you take the effects of your service with you into life, whether that be physical, I've got a metal hip from an injury when I was serving in Timor. I didn't serve in the army in um, Afghanistan. I served there in southern Afghanistan in security roles. And I've visited Afghanistan a number of times uh, since then, working on election 
elections as a as an election observer. So I've seen the that country and the transition it's gone through. But there's no doubt that accumulation of that overseas service, uh, whether it be in or out of uniform, does have an effect. So many of our soldiers have been dishonoured, soldiers, sailors and aviators have been dishonoured by a veteran support system that wasn't doing everything they could to help. So a, a Department of Veterans Affairs system that put so much of the onus on uh, the individual to prove uh, that they've had an effective service that's had a you know a, a really bad effect on them and their ab- ability to transition into life after the military. We all know that it's a difficult transition, but unfortunately when we had so many suicides, many, many more suicides than we had lost in action uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq and other places, the system was letting our patriots who served our country as volunteers, ambassadors for our country overseas, just let them fall through the gaps and, and, and let mm-hmm. them deteriorate to such an, a, a stage that they took their own lives. Now, that's why with Jackie and others we fought so hard for the Royal Commission and what we then fought for was for it not to be a whitewash but for it to have a really good terms of reference so that it looks at the whole system from recruiting all the way through uh, the life of a veteran and their family so that we support the families more. And and these recommendations, whoever the federal government is, have got to be implemented. And, uh, yeah, I take my hat off to Jackie and uh, people like Heston Russell, who's a fellow commando, who, um, you know, really put the pressure on government, as, as we have, to fix the system. And the Royal Commission is an important part of us getting those recommendations that's going to fix the system means that when our men and women go off again to war, as they will in the future, um, that we look after them much better. And, um, and that's our duty and that's a responsibility we take really seriously. It's not just falling through the cracks, though, is it? It's, you know, I'm on the piss with some um, army boys up in the Gold Coast not long ago, you know, that all served. Then they're telling stories about, you know, just in a, in a group of five or six of them, they're telling stories of blokes, you know, getting phone calls from the government telling them, oh, we've accidentally overpaid you on your, on, on your, on your pension, you know, to the sum of 10, 20, 30 grand. Imagine being already on the brink and getting that phone call. You're now 20, 30 grand in debt. How, how is it such a mess? Yeah, it's a good question. And you'd think we would have learned after Vietnam, you know, that, and I think the ex-service organisation sector um, has got a big role to play and I, I'm really looking forward to the recommendations that come out of the Royal Commission now we can uh, have those ex-service organisations better supporting individuals on a one-to-one basis, a really human contact basis because that's when uh, veterans do better, when they've got their mates who understand what they've been through, like you know, in touch with them and talking them through the process, helping them through the process and basically, you've got a whole bunch of Vietnam vets, mainly advocates around the country, who have been helping these contemporary soldiers, sailors, and aviators get what they should get anyway from the Department of Veterans Affairs in terms of, you know, a card to make sure their health care is covered, their mental health care is sorted. They've got um, their support from their local ESOs, and it just the Department of Veterans Affairs grew a culture where if you hadn't filled out all this paperwork and if you hadn't done X, Y and Z, then they would just not give you any benefit of the doubt or even help you as much as they could to do the paperwork so that and to get through the process so you could get some financial stability but also to have someone out there that's, that you think is caring for you as a former service person to get through. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some great people in DVA, but their processes just become so antagonistic to the veteran that a lot of veterans, too many, way too many, lost hope that they were ever going to be supported. Mm. Uh, and from the Gold Coast, Jesse Bird is a good example. And Karen Bird, his mum, uh, has been fighting hard too for, for reform of DVA in this space because, you know, he kept on coming 
into contact with people that should have been helping him and eventually he was so depressed that he took his own life and that I think was uh, part of a turning point where um, people realise that you know, there's something seriously wrong here. Um, yeah, you see a lot of that as a local member. You see a lot of people, whether they're veterans or whether they're having troubles with Centrelink or another uh, another government agency, where it's become too impersonal because we've cut the jobs. Um, and don't even get me started about cuts to the Australian Electoral Commission that saw out of 150,000 Territorians, 40,000 not vote at the last Northern Territory election. We've got the worst enrolment rates in the country. We've got the worst voting rates in the country. So the current federal government cut the staff of our Australian Electoral Commission from 15 people to three people. Now, what do you reckon some of those 15 people did? It was their job to go out, educate in particular Aboriginal Territorians about the electoral system, help them to get on the roll, help them to know what elections and the voting system and how it all works and their voice, they cut that team out of the Territory, sent it to Brisbane and said, oh, they can do that work from Brisbane, you know, which is obviously not happening. So we've got record numbers of Aboriginal Territorians that are just disenfranchised and haven't got a vote. And they're getting fined? Are they getting fined yeah. for not voting? I imagine they are as well. It's, uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's not good and it needs to improve and, you know, you know, putting staff back into our uh, public services in critical areas. So, yeah, putting the human back into human services is something that I reckon needs to happen, as does decentralisation. You know, there's no reason why we shouldn't have part of the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade, a part of it, up here in Darwin engaging with our region. There's no reason why part of the National Indigenous Australians Agency, uh, most of the people in Canberra, there's no reason why we can't have more of those public servants up here in Darwin either. Closer to the coalface, in the regions, the regions will do better. Canberra will have more of an idea what's going on. Well, the one question you're going to get from Canberra is what's the coffee like up there, mate? I think that's the, uh, that's the crux of the issue. Stella. <laughs> Stella. All right, we can move a few of the bureaucrats up there then. Um, Thank you for joining us today, mate. It, um, it, it was a good yarn. It was, it was a good insight to see where Labor's at, uh, you know, in 2021. Yeah, Luke Gosling, MP, thank you. Thank you for your service and thank you for talking to us today. Thank you, Clancy. It's been a, a great chat, mate, and um, I love your show and um, more people should listen to it and I'll do my best. <laughs> Thanks, mate. See you, Have mate. a good one. Bye, mate.